The Word of the Lord, from Luke chapter 6, verses 17 through 26. Jesus came down with them and stood on a level place, with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out of him and healed them all. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you, and revile you, and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day, and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Grace, mercy, and peace be unto you from God our Father and Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ. Amen. The text for our gospel proclamation comes from the Holy Gospel of St. Luke that I just finished reading for you and serves as the basis for a sixth Sunday after the Epiphany theme, laughing and crying together in Christ. The Galileans in the north come south, and the Judeans in the south go north, both traveling from their secure, familiar homelands to see Jesus and hang on every word he says. I cannot underscore enough the importance of what Jesus is uniting by his mere presence in our account today. Typically, there was a healthy disdain between the Judeans and the Galileans. Now, it was not nearly as caustic as the relationship between the Samaritans and the Jews as a whole, which was so bad they would literally walk around their respective countries to avoid each other. But between these two Jewish groups, there were some condescending attitudes nonetheless. The Judeans, mostly from Jerusalem, saw themselves as a cut above all other Jews, especially the Galileans, who were typically more tradesmen-oriented and or fishermen. You know, the classic white-collar toward blue-collar disdain. And I have no doubt that disdain went both ways. Not unlike the fun real working men make about us office boys with our soft hands. That doesn't even include the Gentile Phoenicians that were there and most definitely would cause friction upon the inner family Jewish competition going on. But for some reason, they all didn't seem to mind each other at all when it came to Jesus. And Jesus appears to be an incredibly unifying force among the Jews who undoubtedly had high hopes for him as their true political Messiah. And if that was the case... His sermon on the plane this time had to confuse them. They heard his sermon on the mount. They must have felt he was repeating himself or just using old material. 
I don't know what the priests and prophets of their day did, but pastors will frequently do that, use old material they had previously preached before. And I've done that too. Multiple funerals or extra Lent and Advent services and sermons sometimes force me to do that. But when I do, I have to be careful to go back and make sure I'm not referencing a cultural political leader that may be dead now or no longer holding the office. And that can change some sermons so utterly that it renders it virtually useless. And I have to almost completely rewrite it again anyway. So if the prophets of Jesus' day had a similar parish followings like pastors do today, maybe they would seize upon Jesus using old material. But if they listened carefully, while the content is very similar, it is also very different in one fundamental way. You know, that's typically what we watch for in themes or series in the stories of life. I don't know if you know this, but generally speaking, it's always the same seven plots in every single story. Overcoming the monster, rags to riches, the quest, voyage and return, rebirth, comedy, and tragedy. Now, you would think we would get bored with it, but the truth is we do listen again to see how creatively the old plot may be told this time. For example, the boy meets girl, falls in love with girl. Misunderstanding causes a breakup with the girl, and the movie ends with the boy and the girl dramatically getting back together again. Comedy, tragedy, rags to riches, and rebirth may all be a part of just one of the many storylines we will watch over Valentine's Day. And we'll reward the best movie with five stars if they can do it in a more creative and different way than they've ever done it before. And then we'll talk about it again and again if it's different than anything done before. So much so that it may even become a classic holiday hit that resets the standard for the genre. This is Jesus in their midst, constantly resetting the standard and distinguishing this sermon from the Sermon on the Mount sets an unbelievably new standard that I imagine was the reason he could so effectively gather Gentiles, Judeans, and Galileans together in the same flat, smooth plane. And that difference was the use of you. I know, too simple, right? But if you read the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus consistently says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. In the Sermon on the Plain, he says, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. You see, Jesus changes it from them to you. And by you... I mean the disciples gathered around him now in the sermon, Gentile, Judean, and Galilean alike. And this is critically important. It's no longer their sermon, it's your sermon. You know, I used to work exclusively in inner city ministry in St. Louis and Memphis, Tennessee. Not so much since I've come to Florida because both parishes can hardly be classified as inner city, like where I was in St. Louis and Memphis. 
The churches in the inner city typically struggle and have less money to work with. They are in economically depressed communities, and the parishioners didn't have the wealth the more suburban and rural communities had. And it showed. Buildings were ancient and dilapidated. Hymnals were tattered and antique, if they had them at all. Heating and air conditioning was spotty. And Bibles, Sunday school curriculum, and school curriculum were likewise either tattered, dated, or just missing altogether. It made it difficult to manage. And that was before the problems that gangs, drugs, and vandalism posed in the community as well. One of the things most mayors would work on in depressed cities was broken windows. If they could just eliminate broken windows, it would help in the overall recovery and renewal of the community with businesses moving in and families following close behind. But the pastors had a saying when the community would not see such a recovery under the political will of the people and the community's deterioration and problems would spiral downward. They would exhort the church saying, the problems of the city will soon become the problems of the suburbs. So we all need to work together to stop those problems here. The problems were ignored. It never took long for them to spread to the surrounding wider metropolitan area and become everyone's problem too. The proverbial, not my problem, was not a solution. And Jesus seems to be saying just that in the text today. The problem of poverty, mourning, hunger, and unrighteousness is not their problem, it's your problem too. As God tells us over and over again, if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body either. So we know the whole body of Christ matters because we are the body of Christ and we are all members of it together. To me, that is the greatest comfort of the church. It is never me, and it is never thee. It is always we. We're in this life together. And when the hurricanes hit, it hit all of us. When the local economy crashes, it affects all of us. When one member mourns, we all mourn. When one member rejoices, we all rejoice because it's our body of Christ together made the body of Christ by Christ's body sacrificed on the cross for all our sins. And now that blood covers us, anoints us, cleanses us, and makes us all one in him. But that is just the beginning of what Jesus is saying about you and his sermon on the plain today. What he is also saying is we were blessed for a reason that is different than the oldest tales of all time. The end goal for us in Christ is not to conquer the monster, the demons, and the ever-tempting devil. The be-all and end-all is not to go from rags to spiritual riches. The quest is not to find the perfect spiritual way to live the voyage is not a pilgrimage to the Holy Land to return and talk about to the envy of our fellow parishioners for the rest of our lives. Rebirth is just the beginning, not the ending. 
And belief is not a comedy and tragedy that we endure on the roller coaster of faith. The reality is the ever-present blessing for us and for them. And 2 Corinthians 1 summarizes it perfectly. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. Truly, the blessing we receive through Christ is the very blessing we are blessed with to bless others. So just as Jesus descended from the heavens to take on the form of a servant, to suffer and die on the cross, to save us from our sins, so now we joyfully take that blessing of the cross and serve everyone his love, good news, and forgiveness to those troubled by their sins. You know, there are two types of people in the world that have always fascinated me. Certainly there's several types, but there's two in particular that I am fascinated by. One is the what have you done for me lately crowd. And the other is uh, what can I do for you today, ma'am or sir crowd. Now, I personally find myself constantly wafting between the two, depending on my circumstances on any given day. But I generally find myself asking. What can anyone in my sphere of existence do for me that enables me in serving others? That's when I find the best in people and I see Christ working unhindered instead of me. That's when I realize that I am blessed to be a blessing, not just to be blessed and stay comfortably there, but rather all are blessed to conquer monsters replace the poor individual's rags with riches, embark on the quest every day to find the lost, voyage around the world to return with more good news about Christ, to be reborn every day anew in Christ. So we can laugh and we can cry with one another together in Christ. Now may that peace which surpasses all understanding guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus always. Amen.